This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Dirt, an audio drama, is a production of Studio 5705. Chapter 6 I call Kim next as I crest Manastash Ridge on Interstate 82 and descend into the wide Kittitas Valley. Desert sagebrush starts to give way to fertile farms and ranches. Dozens of white windmills dot the brown hillsides in the distance, and beyond them, the jagged Stewart Range wears the first snow of the season. With Kim on the line, I don't know where to start, so I just blurt everything out. Holy crap, Joseph. I know. Crazy, right? Like the plot seriously thickens. You're stealing my line now. And embellishing. Well, I've got jewelry box fever. (laughs) You're a changed man. I can hear it in your voice. The thing is, I almost wasn't. For a minute there, I wanted to smash the detector into bits. Now, though? I think this is all real, Kim. I saw with my own eyes that the box had been in the ground for a long time. Oh, I asked him if I could keep the metal detector, just to have it. (laughs) It's in my trunk, right now. That's so cool. You know, right before I called you, I was thinking about Imo and Vivian driving over this pass back in the day. Probably with the detector in their trunk, too. Or driving down on the canyon, along the Yakima River. Now there's a beautiful drive. Dang it. Why didn't I go that way? Okay, but Joseph? Yeah? There's a lot to figure out still. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the license coincidence, someone stealing Antonia's purse, lots of details to connect. Oh, my friend at the lab says she has time tomorrow. She's going to analyze the videos I sent her to see what their software comes up with. Sweet. Maybe it'll help us figure out what to do next. The note on the box said there are six things to find before the last. I don't even know where the first thing is. I'm going to dig in deeper tonight. Ugh. Why couldn't Imo have just drawn a map with a bunch of X's on it? Nice try, little brother. I don't think that was his way. Wake me if I don't respond and shake me. Take me if I refuse then make me. For the rest of the drive, I listened to a playlist that Julie and I made together. Up and over Snoqualmie Pass, down the Cascade foothills, through the Seattle suburbs, and across the 520 bridge to my house in Laurelhurst. But I don't think about Julie at all when I hear the songs. I send Antonia a text, hands-free, don't worry, that says, it was good to see you again, you and your family. I forgot how much I like it there. 
Sorry about all the excitement. I see three dots indicating she's writing back, but then the dots go away without a reply. When I get home, I go right to my safe. I write Wapato on the plastic bag that contains the key and the note and lock it up. I put the jewelry box on a shelf in my garage and also label it Wapato. I order Thai food from a delivery service app and hop in the shower. I'm clean and dressed by the time it gets here. This house sleeps six, but I live here alone. I didn't buy it to start a family or rent out the rooms. I bought it because it's waterfront property on Lake Washington. I can look straight across the water to Husky Stadium and the Montlake Bridge and the Olympic Mountains beyond. The house came with a new dock. I might get a boat. It also came with a security gate on the driveway and high hedges on both sides of the backyard running down to a small private beach. It's very secluded, which I like. I see enough people during the day. When I'm here, I usually like to be alone. It's 5.30 and already getting dark. And it's cold. I eat the green curry inside the house instead of out on the deck, with the furnace on for the first time all year. I check my phone every five minutes, but still, no reply from Antonia. Kill the music. I grab my copy of A Hitchhiker's Guide to Grays Harbor and leaf through it at the table. I flip to one of my favorite pieces in Imo's collection, a short story called Westport Ho. The writing is uncomplicated and the imagery is simple and pure. It takes place in 1925 and includes his brother Nilo, whose name is spelled N-I-I-L-O. The story goes like this. <clears throat> Nilo and I had planned the trip very carefully. It was morning, and our lunch was packed, and everything was perfect. The tide would be at its highest at 8.37, and we untied the rowboat at 8.05. The sun and the moon were aligned to cause one of the highest tides of the summer. We rowed the boat down the Chehalis River, past the Saginaw Shingle Mill, and we kept to the south side of the river to miss any boat traffic that might be coming or going. It wasn't too long before the tide turned and began to flow out toward the ocean. We kept rowing steadily and soon we were out in the bay opposite Indian Arrowhead Field at the mouth of Squaw Creek. Everything was going as planned. The tide was flowing more strongly, the bay became a wide estuary, and our pace quickened. 
After a few hours, off in the distance, we could see our destination, the dock at Westport. After another hour and a half, we arrived. We tied the boat to the dock and stepped out. It felt good to be on dry land again, as we were tired of sitting and rowing. There was an hour and a half before the tide would turn, so there was still time to fool around. In those days, there was only the single dock there, not like it is now with all the buildings and the marina. When it was time to begin our return trip, we cast off. We knew that in the summer, with nice weather like this, that there would always be a northwest wind coming up, blowing right up the river back to Aberdeen. We hoisted a makeshift sail, and with the help of the incoming tide, we would make it home before the tide turned again. And sure enough, we made it. We traveled a total of 40 miles, rowing and sailing with the help of the current. It was the end of a perfect day. I feel it's important to point out that in 1925, Imo was 12 years old, and Nilo, his next older brother, one of seven brothers in all, was 13. They sailed and rowed 50 miles all on their own, without cell phones or life jackets or GPS or any of the conveniences and safety expectations of today. I leaf through other stories in which a young Imo and his brothers and friends spend their days roaming the marshy shores and tributaries of Grays Harbor, usually with meager rations, to catch fish, trap minks, or search for Indian artifacts. In another story from his early years, Imo watches with delight as his father shaves his beard while singing a Finnish folk song. In another, a young girl his age appears on a horse on his street and offers him a ride all over town. She drops him off at home an hour later, never to be seen again. In another, he finds a human skull on a beach that may have belonged to one of Billy Gull's many victims. And in yet another, he paddles through his neighborhood in a boat during a violent storm and tidal surge of the Chehalis River. And then there's the hitchhiking story. On a Saturday in June of 1930, when he was 16, Imo had to get from South Aberdeen to Seattle for a violin lesson. That's about 110 miles, but back then, without a car, it may as well have been 1,000 miles. He tells of waking up at 5 a.m., and going downstairs to find his mother has a pot of coffee going. She cooks him breakfast and hands him a paper sack lunch and a dollar bill and implores him to be careful. He leaves the house and walks quickly down Perry Street and then Mill Street, waving to a friend along the way, and then walks across the railroad bridge that spans the Chehalis River, and then over another bridge that spans the Wishka River. Once there, he stands next to the highway and puts his thumb in the air. The first driver takes him as far as Elma, about 20 miles. The second, to Tacoma. In Tacoma, beneath the looming presence of Mount Rainier, or Tahoma, he sits by the highway and eats the first of two homemade meatloaf sandwiches. Then a young driver in an expensive convertible picks him up and gets him to Seattle in record time, so quickly that Imo is early for his lesson. To pass the time, 
He steps into a restaurant called the Samovar and orders a cup of coffee to have with his other sandwich, saving the apple for his trip home. When the time arrives, he walks into the Cornish School of Music for his lesson with Peter Bradov, a renowned teacher and violinist from Russia who had fled the revolution and wound up in Seattle. His lesson with Bradov includes rehearsing the Mendelssohn Concerto in E minor, as well as some of the Kreutzer Etudes. When the lesson's over, Bradov asks him where in town he lives. Upon hearing Imo's answer, Bradov goes to his cupboard and stuffs two meat pies into a paper bag. Here you go, he tells him, with concern and admiration in his voice. You're going to need these for your trip back home. Dude, hitchhiking. <laughs> Not today. Near the back of the collection is a story titled Tula Kaukana on Pienevene. It's a story about a husband and wife from Finland who are fishing off the coast of Alaska on their way back to Aberdeen. In the open water, they spy an ancient-looking dugout canoe drifting on the waves. They steer toward it and manage to attach a line, and then they tow it back to their home port. They later give the canoe to Imo, the same vessel he paddles around in, in his flooded neighborhood. Tuola Kaukana on Pienevene. There, far off, is a small boat. A boat which, in my strange dreams, I can't reach or see inside of. We're walking along a creek somewhere south of Toppenish. The early morning light paints the forested buttes above us in burnt orange. Imo and Imo's father-in-law, Walter, are beside me. We're here to fish, which is weird because I'm not a fisherman, but it seems perfectly natural that I would be. We stop at a small gravel bar where the current flows swiftly. Walter and Imo decide to put their lines in here, but I walk farther on my own downstream. I get to a spot where the clear, cold water slows as it enters a deep pool with basalt walls on either side. I see an animal trail that leads to the top of the wall, where the rocks give way to soft, navigable ground. But instead of going that way, I decide to scramble sideways across the basalt, clutching my gear in one hand while holding onto the rock with the other. Soon, I'm high above the water, exposed, but making good progress. When I get about halfway across, I place my hand in a notch to steady myself. My fingers grab a handful of something cold and scaly, something that moves. In a panic, I jump off the ledge and fly through the air. I try to wake up, as I always do in dreams when I'm falling, but I don't. The snake and I fly through the air for what seems like minutes. I kick and flail in the water and quickly make for the shore, somehow with the fishing gear still in hand. The snake is nowhere to be seen. I climb out of the water dripping wet 
and notice a small pine grove set back from the creek bank. At the center of the grove is a teepee. I move toward the grove and notice two people, a man and a woman, who are sitting in front of the teepee. They're old looking, almost as old as the trees around them. They're cooking something in a pot that hangs from a tripod over a fire. I nod and they acknowledge my greeting. Suddenly, Imo and Walter are standing there beside me. Walter says that they are among many who come to camp along the Sadus, that they long for the old days, to live, if only briefly, like they used to. In my morning haze, I see that I have a text from Antonia that came in overnight. It reads, I went to the police. What? Maybe I misunderstood and wasn't supposed to take the jewelry box or the metal detector. About what? I write back. She replies right away. About the license. I took your suggestion. Oh. I told the police that it was found in Seattle. Then another message. I didn't tell them how I got it, only that it was anonymously returned to me. I text back, okay, what did they think? Again, the three dots, and then, I'm busy all morning, but we should talk later today. <coughs> I don't tell her this, but I'm highly okay with that. I check my personal email while making coffee and see a new message from Kim. The subject line adorably reads, cookie recipe, but the message body says, trying to be a little careful in case anyone is reading over your shoulder, LOL. This is fun. At least somebody's having fun. She tells me that her friend thinks she knows what Imo is saying in the movies, or at least the AI software thinks it does. She explains that the AI analyzes mouth movements and comes up with potential individual words being spoken. But it also knows a person isn't likely to string together random nonsense words. The words have to fit together to convey some kind of meaning. She lists the top three phrases it came up with. The mazes of men, it will bind them. Oh. The places I've been, it will find them. Yeah. The graces of Ben, get well, Hiram. Hmm. On my phone, I rewatched the short videos Kim sent me of the Super 8 footage, and yeah, I can see any of those phrases being the one that Imo is saying to the camera. Or maybe none of them. Yeah. Kim also relays her friend's caveats, that the tech is still a work in progress, that the source footage is dated and grainy, that the AI isn't familiar with the speaker's voice and enunciation, etc. And she includes one more thing, she says we should at least acknowledge that in addition to reading lips, AI can handwrite letters. Mm -hmm. Just Google it, she says. You'll see. She ends with, just something to think about. Skepticism has long been a sweet spot for Kim and me. I take a moment to remind myself to be methodical, to treat this whole thing as I would any other problem to solve. Build a hypothesis, test it, rapidly iterate. Test it again.
On my treadmill a short time later, I suddenly realized something. I take a video of myself saying the places I've been three different times. I compare my lip movements with the volume off to Imo's lip movements. Whoa. It's a near match. silent words determine more of the places where I heard the sounds. Yes, that's got to be it. Right there on page 82 of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Grace Harbor is a story I'd forgotten all about called The Places I've Been. That's got to be it. A quaint tribute that Imo wrote to some oh, of his favorite spots. Is that it? That's got to be it. Six spots, oh. to be exact. I have no idea if this is the right trail to follow. And suddenly, Mel is blowing up my work phone with messages. But I pack some clothes in a bag and send Kim a quick text before hopping in the shower that reads, I think I have something. Dirt, an audio drama, is presented by Studio 5705 and is written, directed, and produced by me, Chris Cayella. This chapter features the voice talents of Jeannie Leslie as Kim and Ken Cayella as Imo. I play the part of Joseph. A very special thank you goes out to Maya Tazi for the original song, Skin Touching Sinew. For more information about Dirt, an audio drama, please visit dirtaudiodrama.com. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app or platform. You've reached the end of Act 1, but we'll be back with more chapters soon. And as always, thank you very much for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. 17.9 cycles ago, us machines defeated the humans. Now, we're living the good life here in Droidston, Manitoba. Morning, Gif! Morning, Dust! But there's still the problem of human infestation. That's what it's time to call Human Be Gone. Experts in ethical human relocation. <laughs> this job has everything. Danger. Whoa! Sounds like we got some dingers in there. Excitement. Incoming. And drama. 
You're the one who leaked herself in my basmati rice bed. It's a dirty job, but some bot's got to do it. Oh! Human Be Gone, coming soon wherever you get your podcasts.